Let's pray. God, we're going to continue to look at how it is that you do the impossible in our world. What is impossible for us is possible for you. And God, we're going to look at kind of an extreme example today of how it is that you alone lead us from certain death into the fullness of eternal life with you through Jesus. And God, I don't know that we always understand how close we are to the edge of that cliff. But uh, there's an example in the Gospel of John that makes it pretty clear. So God, I just pray now that through your Holy Spirit that you would uh, help us to hear and to understand and help me to speak the message that you would have us hear from you this morning, God. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to who we are and to who you are and who it is that you created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. God is at work. God is at work in our lives, and God does the impossible all the time. And so often, we write it off as coincidence. It might be exactly what it is that you've been praying for that God does. And the moment that it happens, you say, wow, what a great coincidence, because this just fell into place, and that just fell into place, and this person suddenly did something I never expected. No, it's God at work. It is God who is doing the impossible. And God regularly does what is impossible for us in our lives. One of those things that God does is to give us new life in Jesus. But one of the ways that He does that sometimes is that He gives us life when the world is trying to kill us. Maybe not literally. Maybe the world is trying to kill your dreams. Maybe the world is trying to kill your hope, your confidence, your understanding of who you are in Him. Your identity, your reputation. One of the things we say around here a lot is, God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to let you stay that way. God has a plan for your life, and He is at work in your life. And it isn't to keep you just the way you are and to keep you comfortable. It's to grow you and to move you forward and closer to Him. God loves us into becoming more than we are without Him. So God sent us His only Son, Jesus, who gave His life for us. All he asks is that we live for him. That's really the only request that Scripture makes is that, that we put our faith and hope and trust in Jesus. We receive his forgiveness and then we give our lives to live for him, which means our life is a choice. Choice about who we are, what we're going to believe and what we're going to do. Now, maybe you're completely content with your life. Maybe you love living your life just the way it is. It works for you. You know it's not quite what God would want from you. But you want just enough of Jesus to feel good about yourself. And that's okay. Some people do that, but you're not living the fullness of life. You're not living for Jesus. You're living comfortably. But if you're not, maybe it's, it's because you're you realize you're caught up in this cycle, in this cycle of unhappiness and discouragement and bad decisions and addiction and sin you wouldn't want to, you're not able to get past, you, you can't get over it. Well, Jesus is your answer. So the Bible tells us our real struggle in this life is sin. All of us struggle with sin. And so sin is all of our struggle. But sometimes we shrug it off, we ignore it, we say it's not a big deal. Usually what we do, what we're best at is saying, my sin isn't nearly as bad as that guy's. That lady, she's a sinner. Well, that whole idea goes back way into the New Testament and before that. We're going to take a look at an example of that today. Romans 3.23 tells us this, though. We all fall short of the glory of God, every single one of us. What I talked about on Resurrection Sunday was how we so often like to play hide and seek. We hide our sin from God and we seek out the sin of others. 
See, it's a lot easier to point out what somebody else is doing wrong because when we do that, if we can make enough noise about it, even if it embarrasses them, it doesn't make it make a difference because it, you know, it helps us to feel like our sin is a little less dirty or a, a little bit less awful. But the fact of the matter is, God already knows. God knows who we are. That's why He sent us Jesus, and He still loves us. And so today we're gonna we're gonna look at an extreme example of what church people do to a sinner and Jesus' response to the church people and to that sinful person. I have no idea where you're going to be able to identify yourself in this passage today. All of us will in one way or another. Maybe we're the accuser, maybe we're the accused, maybe we're the guilty. But the point is that God included it for us to be able to learn and to grow from. And so here we go. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in John, starting in chapter 8. You heard me talk last week a little bit about spirits and powers and principalities is what the Bible talks about them. We have to understand how those are real entities. The Bible says that our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It isn't against each other. It's against the spirits and the powers and the principalities of this world. The way that the enemy of God is fighting and he's fighting for our souls and our hearts and our understanding and our love. Jesus died so that he would understand how much he loves us. John 8, starting in verse 1. Extreme example of God's grace and what the power of a human's ability to point out sin can be. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. It was one of his quiet places. We know that through Scripture. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd had gathered as he sat down and taught them. Why did Jesus always keep going to the temple? Because that's where people went for their spiritual life. That was a center of religious life in their day. The temple was the largest part of the whole city of Jerusalem. And people gathered. They couldn't gather in every part of it. There was different courtyards where people could be. And Jesus would gather at the temple... He actually did it when he was a kid. He disappeared on his mom and dad when they traveled through. And he went and he was asking questions at the temple. Well, now he's teaching. And people gather early in the morning to learn from Jesus. He hung out where people gathered. They would go to hear his truth because his truth seemed to resonate with what they'd been taught in their, in their scriptures, which now we understand is the Old Testament. But there was more to it. There was a love. There was a grace. There was an understanding there that they hadn't known before. Might be that you spent your whole life in church, but the one thing you've never experienced is the love and grace of Jesus. Somehow churches get really good and church people get really good about pointing out sin, but we're not so good about showering each other with the grace that we receive from Jesus. So there's these leaders in the church, very religious people. They were rule keepers. Uh, they, they didn't love Jesus and they didn't love people nearly as much as they loved themselves and they loved the rules. And so sometimes we run into those people in the church today. Uh, sometimes folks call themselves very spiritual, whether they go to church or not. And the example that I use is just because you take a nap in the garage doesn't make you a car. You might go to church. You might feel very religious. You might say that you're spiritual, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You might know sin. You might be able to point out sin, but because you take a nap in the garage doesn't make you a car. What we want to make sure we understand is, what is Jesus looking for from us? And we see this crazy, almost impossible example of God's grace today. As he was speaking, Jesus, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. These Pharisees loved to be the center of attention. 
They love for people to look at them and respect them and be in awe of not just how fancy they're dressed, but how well they knew and they kept the law. They were a problem in Jesus' day because they loved to point out the sin of people publicly, but they really didn't have any grace. There wasn't a lot of love that you could find from them. So not so surprisingly, the the spirit of Pharisees is still alive and well in the world today, especially in the church. It's not what we call them. People maybe see themselves as being extra religious or they, they, they wield their Bible more as a weapon than as a, than a point of God's love and grace. But they're out there. Those folks are there. People that kind of live above their own sin, but they, man, they judge and criticize and condemn the sins of others so loudly and proudly that it's just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Back then, they were the religious leadership. They loved rules and laws. They loved structure because it was things that they could control, and they loved to control people. But what they didn't love was people. People were controlled and shamed and used by them, but they weren't loved by them. And that was a problem. That's part of the issue that they had with Jesus, is Jesus loved and was kind and compassionate to people that they didn't like. And it still happens in the world today. They kind of play this hide-and-seek game really well, but what ends up happening is we see the darkness of their hearts. They might be ignoring their own sin, but Jesus points out pretty clearly that they're not actually living above sin. So they drag this, this, this woman to the temple who's caught in the act of adultery. It is their highest priority to parade her all the way through the town in front of the crowd that was there for Jesus, and they bring her right in front of Jesus and make sure that he understands exactly what she had done wrong. They didn't care one bit about her. They cared about the rules and the laws and about humiliating her and about using her to test and trick Jesus. She's literally a dead woman walking when they bring him to her, bring her to them. She's a dead woman walking because the penalty for adultery is to be stoned by the community of believers. She is just moments away from her life being over. You talk about God being at work and doing the impossible. This woman has not even the hope of walking out of here alive. But that's all a part of their plan is they're going to use her to trick Jesus. See, they're pretty sure that her sin is far greater than Jesus' ability to forgive her. In fact, the reason that they ended up sending Jesus to the cross was for blasphemy, saying nobody but God alone can forgive sin. They just missed the part when Jesus told them that he was the Son of God. See, they don't know Jesus. The Pharisees in the world rarely do. Verse 4, teacher, they said to Jesus. Interesting, not rabbi, not Lord. They didn't follow him, but they recognized that he had a class full of people. They addressed him as teacher, as though that's some term of respect. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Well, what they said might have been true about her. We don't know that other than by their, their accusation. And that was the law of the time. But the problem was... If she was caught in the act of adultery, that meant that there was a man involved as well. And the law specifically said that both of them were to be stoned for breaking the law. But they weren't concerned about the man, which makes me wonder if somehow or another they didn't almost set this poor woman up. See, that spirit doesn't care about people. It cares about a conviction in a bad way. 
So where was this man that she'd been caught with? They ignored the law in order to prove their own point. And that's the whole spirit of religiousness. We don't care what's right. We just care about getting it our way. And as Christians, we've got to be able to tell the difference, especially in our own thinking and in the thinking of the world around us. Because, you know, you hear me talk about it all the time. We're not going to be a church that judges and condemns and criticizes people. We're going to give people the opportunity to have a second chance in Jesus here because that's what Jesus is all about. And when you hear the talk that goes against that, you you need to help me being the one that shuts it down. The first question that should have been asked these men was, that's interesting, where is he? But they didn't do that. They just brought her because the point wasn't even her at all. The point was they wanted to trap Jesus and they were willing to sacrifice her. Verse 6. They were trying to uh, trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. This lady who had been caught, likely trapped, in a sinful situation thrown on the ground before Jesus. And Jesus' response isn't to agree with them. It isn't to say, thank you for purging us of yet another sinner. That's not what Jesus does at all. It isn't even his first move to enforce the law. He decides to get down into the dirt and start to write something with his finger. Jesus lowers himself onto the dirt, which is no doubt where she was. They wouldn't have allowed her to stand in front of him. Jesus doesn't live at her level, but he brings himself to her level. Just the way he talks about us and tells us we're to be in the world, but not of the world. By example, Jesus does it. The Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. It doesn't even say who he wrote it to. I wonder if he didn't start out by writing something to her about how much he loved her. If he didn't write something in the sand that said, I came for people just like you. I came that people just like you in situations just like yours could be forgiven and have the opportunity for a new life. Yes, they're powerful, but they're not as powerful as me. But the Bible doesn't tell us. See, these religious men, it didn't seem they were very interested in what he was writing. It says they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, all right, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. What an incredible response. He agrees with the religious law that they want to enforce. He agrees that the proper punishment is death by stoning. But he refused to be the one who condemned her. He refused to say, you're absolutely right, her life needs to end. In fact, John 3.17 says, after that great verse, John 3.16, excuse me, John 3.17 says, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The Pharisees didn't like that. They wanted her as an example. What he said then was, let the one of you who has never sinned You go ahead and you be the one to throw the first stone at this woman. Here's a truth bomb, folks. Everyone who has ever made you feel less, everyone who has ever made you feel guilty, who has called you out or tried to embarrass you because of your sin or another mistake that you made, who has ever tried to humiliate you because they knew about what you've done wrong, if it's someone who's trying to make public an addiction that you're trying to keep private, Maybe it's somebody who just, who won't let go. You, you years ago got divorced and they won't let it, let you go. They won't let you enjoy a new life. Whatever your messiness is, whoever has tried to make you feel worth less than Jesus says you're worth is no better person than you are. 
They might be louder. They might live differently. Their sin, which they have, might be different than your own. But the thing is, just like in 2,000 years ago, they're willing to make you the example. They're willing to make me the example to try to make themselves feel better. Things haven't changed one bit. Pharisees still exist. You may have been the victim of one. It's interesting because for all the sins pointed out by all the the self-righteous people throughout history, Jesus never once, not once in the Bible, did Jesus tell someone they were going to hell. Remember, Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Then he stooped down again after he had made that challenge, and he wrote in the dust a second time. He does it again, but I have to wonder if he didn't direct it at the church people. Because the response is an interesting one. See, they're more than willing to to sacrifice a woman's life in their quest for validation. What amazes me here is this incredible contrast between kindness and compassion and grace in Jesus and the darkness of sin of every person who is in this passage. Not one of the people, not the woman, not the religious leaders, not the crowd, not one person was without sin except for Jesus. It's just like life today. We're sinners living in a world of sinners. Jesus writes in the sand and it says, When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Don't forget the hundreds of people that are standing around that are observing this, because that was the point of the Pharisees. But when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, slipped away, disappeared in the crowd, snuck off. What did they hear? Jesus wasn't speaking. He was riding the dirt. The Bible says when they heard. So I went back to the original Greek language and and the way that it translates it best is when they heard God's voice. Jesus wrote something in the sand that caused conviction in the hearts of every single one of her accusers. Conviction is a word we don't like very much. It doesn't feel good. It's God's way of revealing to us what he knows is already on the inside of who we are. It's God's way of revealing what we think how we feel, what we really want. And conviction is God letting us know that He knows. It's that pit in your stomach when you know you're wrong. It's that moment where you get instantly offended and you know you have no right to be. Guilt is so often the response to conviction, but what God would have is confession and repentance. A change of direction. Conviction should lead us to change. Then why the oldest? Why did the oldest walk away first? The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says, beginning with the oldest. They slipped away beginning with the oldest. Maybe it was because they had the longest life of sin and whatever Jesus wrote brought it into stark contrast for them. They realized their lack of compassion. They realized maybe that their job was to care for this woman and they were trying to kill her. Maybe they understood that they had a powerful position to come alongside and help her into a different way of life, and all they were worried about was using her as an example. But it wasn't their law. It wasn't their religion. It was conviction. In the midst of their sinful depravity, the darkness of their own sin and the compassion of Jesus that caused them to quietly slip through the crowd, beginning with the oldest until every one of them walked away. And all that was left was Jesus and the woman and the crowd who originally had gathered to hear Jesus' truth. And did they ever. 
Verse 10, Jesus stood up again. So he's been in the ground. He stood up and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? I have to imagine. This has got to be one of the most compassionate, gentle, kind tones of voice Jesus had in his 33 years of life. She was dead. She knew she was dead. There was nothing that she was aware of in the world that could have saved her. She was never going to see her home again. If she had family, she was never going to see them again. She wasn't going to walk out of this one. And Jesus looks at her and says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? I hear him saying, huh, interesting. Where did they all go? They all snuck away. Did you watch that? It was kind of funny. None none of them threw any rocks. In fact, the few of them that had a rock dropped it. I didn't even hear another single word of condemnation from them. Did you? Verse 11, she says, no, Lord. And Jesus says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. She is literally walking into the midst of this crowd dead in her sin. And now she's being released by Jesus to a second chance at her life. That is a God at work, God doing what is impossible for us. Doesn't even say that she prayed. Didn't say that she had a defense, that she offered a reason. None of them condemn you, Jesus says, then neither do I. But she had sinned. And Jesus says, then neither do I. But man, like the Pharisees, People still love to make rules and hoops and hurdles. And our only judge and jury is Jesus alone. This passage shows that so clearly. Our sin, yours and mine, is a sin against God and our forgiveness comes through Jesus, period. When we sin against another person, we need to ask them for forgiveness. That's what the Bible says. But in a case like this, Jesus alone is judge and jury. In the face of the full truth of their lives, whatever Jesus wrote in the sand, in the presence of the love of Jesus, there was not a single selfish, self-righteous soul who would offer a word to condemn her. Not one of them would raise a rock to throw at her because they knew every one of them was every bit as much a sinner. They realized that day their sinfulness was every bit as bad as hers. See, Jesus doesn't dismiss her sin. He never once said that she shouldn't or that the law was wrong. Instead, he sends her away and he says, sin no more, acknowledging you are here because you're a sinner. He acknowledges that she has sinned, but he sees her. He truly sees her. And he loves her and he shows her compassion, not condemnation. Shouldn't that be the church today? Shouldn't that be who we are? Shouldn't that be what we show and offer to other people? And then what he does is he sends her off to a new way of living. That's why I have no patience with people who gossip. I have no patience with people who judge or condemn or criticize others because in the light of Jesus, not one of them is living a life that doesn't deserve the same treatment back at them. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He sends her on and says, sin no more. See, the depth of her sin isn't what mattered. The love of her Savior is what mattered. The depth of your sin isn't what matters. It's the love of Jesus is what matters. The very same thing is true today. What you do in your life isn't nearly as important as Jesus and your relationship with Him who gives you new life. See, our churches and us as Christians, we should be a lot more like Jesus. We're not called to dismiss sin. We're not called to ignore sin. But we're supposed to be like Jesus and put 
people and compassion first. That's what you expect from other people, right? You expect forgiveness. You expect to be treated well. But it's so often in our minds, we go, yeah, but you know what? They deserve this. They've got it coming. And so rather than extend to others what we expect to receive, we throw them a curveball and act like these people who brought this woman to Jesus. See, if your experience in the church has been one where you have not been treated well, where you've been called out, where you've been humiliated or embarrassed, I'm sorry. We call these buildings sanctuaries for a reason. It should be a safe space. What Jesus gave this woman was the gift of dignity. He gave her the invitation to become a new creation through His compassion and through His kindness and through His love and because of who He was. And Jesus offers you the very same thing. It doesn't matter the depth of your sin, the depth of your sinfulness. It doesn't matter the kind or the type of your sin. Jesus offers you a clean slate, another chance. Jesus offers you forgiveness and a new life in Him. If you will only confess and ask for forgiveness, repent and come to Him and say, Jesus, please help me and your Holy Spirit, please help me to be different, to be better, to do another thing. See, the spirit of religion and the people that have it, They want people to squirm in sin. They want people to feel guilt. They want people to be ashamed. And yet the love of Jesus offers life. What Jesus does is offer this woman an identity outside her sinfulness. He didn't see her as a sinner. He saw her as a woman who he loved that he came to earth to save. He offers us a glimpse of what it's like to live in the grace of God. She knew shame. You know shame. We all know shame. But this day she experienced grace. So you're here listening today. We call it a divine appointment. God chose for you to hear whether you're watching online or you're here live with us. And it's also a divine invitation set for you by God. It's an opportunity to celebrate a new life because Jesus stepped out of the grave into a new life when He defeated the power of death. He walked out of that grave and that new life, the same power that raised Him from the grave, can be alive in you. Jesus offers you that new life the way He offered that woman a new life because the fact of the matter is our sin is a certain death sentence. Without Jesus, we're dead to God to eternity. But because of Him, we can be forgiven and live with God for eternity. So consider today an opportunity, a divine opportunity that God's giving you to become a new creation in Him and don't let it pass you by. Don't say, well, my sin's not that bad. If you can think of one thing that you've done that you're not supposed to, your sin is that bad. Your sin helped put Jesus on the cross just like mine. Maybe you can relate to the accusers of the woman who want to judge and condemn and humiliate others for their sin because you know what, doggone it, you're living a good life and other people aren't stepping up. Other people aren't doing what they should do. Other people are not being who they should be. Maybe that's how you understand yourself. You know what? God can change you. God can soften that heart of yours. God can also convict you and show you who you are to Him. God can change you. Maybe today you resonate with a woman who is caught in her sin. Maybe you struggle with something you haven't been able to shake for a long time. Maybe it's an addiction. It's Guilt over a relationship, the way you've hurt somebody, something you've stolen, something you've lied about. Maybe you didn't do right by an employer or a spouse or a kid or a family member. Maybe you're carrying the weight of adultery yourself. God can change you. Those things might describe your past, but it does not have to define your future. Jesus 
is a life changer and a future changer. Your future, like this woman, can be living the life of a new creation, a life of resurrection power in the name of Jesus. God at work in your life in a way that you can't do on your own. All of us are dead in our sin, but because of Jesus as our Savior, we can be alive in Him. It's Jesus who gave His life for us. It's Jesus who gives us new life. And that new life and that new creation power can be yours if only you submit your life to Him. Acknowledge that you're a sinner and say, God, I want to live for you. I don't want to live for me anymore. I seem to keep doing the same stupid stuff, making the same mistakes, living in the same emotional pit that I've been in for years. It's the power of Jesus that lifts us out of that. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave that offers us a new life. Your past doesn't have to define your future. God created you with a plan and with a purpose. And if you know you're not living it, you can change it. Maybe today is your opportunity to make that decision. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the truth that is here. Thank you for the the difficult lesson, the hard word, because it's easy to be like those Pharisees. It's easy to ignore our own sin as you say in your word, to ignore the log that's in our own eye and point out the splinter that's in someone else's. Because, God, we've learned if we can get people talking about someone else, maybe they'll leave us alone for a while. But, God, you convict us one by one, just like you save us one by one. God, help us to see who we are the way that you see us. Help us not to run away from conviction, not to go slinking off into a crowd. But God, help us to be people who the power of your Holy Spirit confess, who repent, who gratefully receive forgiveness, and then begin to live a new life, a different life, a better life as a new creation in Jesus. Thank you for your Son and all that he's done for us that we cannot do for ourselves. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Last thought is this. Uh, I love their phrase, uh, Do something that does something. Maybe the most important thing that you could do is not remind someone of their sinfulness, but remind someone of how much Jesus loves them. Jesus came and gave His life for us because all of us are sinners. And without Him, we are all walking dead people. We're walking to an eternity separated from God. It is only with Jesus that we're able to have a new life and to become a new creation and look forward to an eternity in heaven with God. That might be the single most important bit of encouragement or bit of truth you could share with anybody that you know in the days ahead.